2: I'm kind of a stress ball today, <laughs> like even I'm knocking the microphone around. Um, I'm over scheduled this week. All right, so um, I have a question before we begin because I was just hearing it on the news. Uh, they were talking to the guy who won, he's a Yale guy, he won the Nobel Prize for Economics. And he says what everybody says, some version uh, of this anyway, is what everybody says. He goes, well, I know I didn't recognize the number, so I thought it was a spam call. Um does anybody ever think they probably did win the Nobel Prize right cuz everybody now says that it was going you know I thought it was my uncle Ralph calling he does this every year <laughs> sometimes he actually travels to Sweden so he can make the phone call you know and I'm I'm like hey, come on Ralph cut it out and then it turned out I really won the Nobel uh, you know is there any money <laughs> <laughs> is there anybody left in the world who, like when the phone rings on this day, they turn to the person in the house with them and goes, you know what that is? That's my freaking Nobel Prize, which I'm almost 100 percent sure I won this year. But it's sort of a prerequisite now, right? It's kind of like you have to say that whether you believe it or not. You have to say, oh, no, I didn't think I, th- I figured it was actually one of those things where they offer to restructure your student loans or something, you know, or tell you you're going, going on a cruise. Anyway. Um. Yeah, the MacArthur's came out to the same kind of thing. Well, anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. What we decided to do was to make the airwaves available to you as callers. Uh, and I'll give you the number right now so you can think about calling. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. And um, let me say a few things. I mean, first of all, obviously one reason. I mean, I think we're sort of all in a bad mood, a kind of a collective bad mood, except the people who are really happy about how things are going. There are people who are happy about things, how things are going. There are people who are very happy that Brett Kavanaugh is on the Supreme Court. And it's kind of important to remember that, too. It's important to remember that there's a whole bunch of people who have a completely different narrative from you. In the immortal words of the great uh, Alexandra Petri uh, of The Washington Post, and I will uh, try to summarize them from memory. Uh, From the point of view of Jabba the Hutt, Star Wars is a movie about a guy who owed him money and got his friends to kill Jabba rather than pay up. Um, So, I mean, there's just sort of different perspectives is what we're saying. So there are people who are happy, and then there are people who are really unhappy. And I think even among the people who are happy, There's obviously something kind of viscerally divisive about what's happened over the last few weeks. We've wound up talking to one another, not just about our attitudes about who should be on the Supreme Court, but about an awful lot of other attitudes about really how we process the stories that make up life. So and that'll get you going. (laughs) So anyway, we're in this kind of national bad mood, let's say. Uh, So what do we do with it? You know, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the next four weeks? There's an election coming up in four weeks. What are you going to do with these four weeks? Unless it's five weeks. I don't know. I might have lost track of that. Let's, let's say it's four. Um, how, what are you going to do with these four weeks? And, and, and how are you going to spend that time? A, I mean, there are an awful lot of people who have decided that uh, they, they need to work on uh, a campaign or a bunch of campaigns or give a bunch of money to various candidates. There's For some reason, or are a lot of people who feel right now that they need to give money to a candidate who doesn't exist. That would be the candidate running against Susan Collins in 2020. I would just sort of, like, I understand why you're frustrated with Susan Collins. I'm frustrated with Susan Collins, too. I think it's sort of a bad idea to give money to a, you don't even know who it is, you know. It could be, like, Pennywise from It. Doesn't he live in Maine? You know. You don't know who this candidate is. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be anybody. So, so don't just give money to that person. And as Mike Pesca, our friend Mike Pesca from the Just pointed out, for example, the Tennessee election, uh, which features Marsha Blackburn, who's, you know, kind of the kind of person who was just always going to vote yes for a Brett Kavanaugh. That's a pretty close election. It's happening right now. There's an identifiable opponent that, you know, people could support. But it's like, I, you know, that's we, we want to do the thing that we're mad about, not necessarily the thing that makes sense. You know, we operate on, on much more on our viscera and our limbic system uh, than on our actual. I mean, we think we're rational, but we're not. And that's like everybody. Uh, anyway, our number 860-275-7266. I've got Jean from Coventry here. Just before I get to her, I wanted to make a couple of other little points here, which is, you know, at some point, we're going to have to deal with the question of our national unhappiness. Now, our national unhappiness springs from lots of different wells, Um, and a lot of those wells were in place well before this present moment or 2016 or whatever, But I I ran into this guy. I think I I can tell this story. I ran into this guy uh, Wednesday night last week. We were doing this um, panel that's going to air next Tuesday uh, about, you know, trying to find some way to sort of increase our ability to talk in a not completely, screamingly hostile manner towards one another. It's not a very catchy title for the panel. We'll have to come up with something else. But, um, you know, if, if there's a way to kind of restore a little bit more Comedy uh, to our political discourse. Anyway, Leo Candy, who's like an old union guy, and I do mean old. No, just kidding. But he's retired now, and he and his wife. Uh, what they're doing right now, they have a travel project, and what they're doing is they they are traveling. Uh, this might be him calling up. Uh, they are they are traveling to the happiest countries in the world. Uh, I think, you know, they're going to New Zealand next, but they've got the list of the 10 happiest countries in the world and they're going there, I th- you know, because like, why not? Why not? I mean, you have to travel for some reason. So this seems like a really interesting reason to travel, to go places that are happy. Um, so um, so anyway, well, no, there's a different Leo calling up. Uh, but like, I want to hear more about that once he's all done. I, I think they've got like three more to go after this one. But when he's all done, I want to know what, what they figured out, because I think we're not a happy country. No, there's a lot of structural policy-driven reasons why we're not a happy co- country. I mean, access to health care is such an incredibly iffy thing, even with the ACA. And being able to afford anything with plans within the ACA is an iffy thing. And You know, the idea that with every passing moment, the goal of... Revoking the ACA gets a, perhaps a little closer. So I mean, things like that tend to make us a little less happy. But I want to say one other thing, and then we're going to go to the phones. Oh, I want to say two other things. One of them is back to that uh, Tennessee election. Right after uh, uh, Mike Pesca tweeted out something about you know everybody seems to want to fund the uh, the election of Susan Collins's unknown opponent in 2020. What about a close election like Tennessee? Taylor Swift, who ordinarily does not take strong political stances, uh issued a blistering statement uh because, you know, she obviously pays a lot of attention to Mike Pesca, a big fan of the gist. Um she, she a blistering statement about the politics of Tennessee, uh, and really encouraging people uh, not to vote for the Republicans and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Um, so that was one of the things I wanted to say. The other one I wanted to say, thing I wanted to say, and then we're going to go to Jean and Leo and Amy and Peter on the line. Um is that there is a thing that I call and we're going to discuss it a little bit more in the audio version, the radio version of the panel we did last Wednesday. There's something that I call the narcissism of the present moment. And what that is is our belief that we are living in the most cataclysmic era of all time. Now, with what came out on climate change today, it's possible that in that sense, we are. (laughs) We might be living in the near extinction of the human race. So in that sense, I want to take that off the table for a moment, because really there's an argument for like, why are we even talking about Brett Kavanaugh? We should be talking about climate change. Um, But but if we take that off the table, there's this idea, this is the worst it's ever been. Well, no, it's not. or now that it's gotten so bad it can never get any better. Well, no, that's not true either. So like 68 to 71, incredibly tumultuous time in this country. Bombs going off like all the time. Bombs in this country going off all the time. Like all the time. Uh and uh, you know, it's not just bombs. I mean, people really not being able to get along. Then there were you know, we've been in world wars and depressions uh uh, you know those were like really bad times. Uh, the Civil War, you know, pr- pretty bad time in terms of Americans not being able to get along. you know, and at the ends of those times of great tumult and crisis, we actually have been able. Uh, to recover certain parts of ourselves and recover and patch up some of the divisions, but not some of the other divisions. You know, Nothing ever gets as fixed as we want it to be. But it's also possible that nothing is ever quite as broken as we think it is. So I'm just sort of cautioning you on that as, as you deal with your own national bad mood. Now, as promised, we're going to the phones, 860-275-7266. I am going to go right down the line. Here's Jean from Coventry. Hi, Jean. Good
0: morning. Or good afternoon. I'm
2: sorry. Whatever. We're not picky.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was uh, just calling to make a comment. I was listening to Morning Edition. I was taking a long drive today and um, listening a lot. And there was a representative uh, for Donald Trump. I think it was Morning Edition this morning. And they were interviewing him. And he just made a comment regarding the, the protesters for the Kavanaugh hearing nomination, uh, you know, uh, and he just described the group as radicals that were clawing and screeching
3: hmm.
0: at the door. Mm-hmm. So I just, and the the interviewer just didn't really come, was kind of a little bit stunned at that tone as well, but didn't really, you know, he said, don't you respect these people? But he said, well, they're, you know, he just, it, it just evoked, you know, like, hate To say this, a cat fight, you know, and it's mm-hmm. very, it just seems very misogynistic that he would lump, you know, people who are protesting into and just using that visage and that language. And I find that very disturbing and it's more and more common and just kind of accepted. And no one says, you know, why are you describing people like that, you know? It's, uh,
2: Right. I would agree, I would agree that if you use the terms clawing and screeching, those are I mean, I hate this particular word, but those are certainly gendered terms uh, and uh, and kind of uh, remove these people who I'm guessing are probably pretty normal people, pretty average people who are just upset about this one issue from that realm and put them in the realm of some kind of exotic wild animal, some wild cat, you know, uh, that needs to be tamed. I mean, the way that we talk about one another these days, it, it really is pretty awful, and um, I'm probably about as bad <laughs> as anybody else, but that one's bad, too, and certainly coming from the White House, it doesn't seem right, Gene. I would understand why that would bother you. Yeah, it's, it, you
0: know, this whole
2: thing is just
0: unbelievable how we you know, how we've just spiraled yep. out of control. So yeah. I just find everything very upsetting.
2: All right. Well, it sounds like you're still on a long drive, so focus on that driving, and uh, try not, and don't do road rage, no matter how upset. I sort of actually seriously do worry about that. People are so upset right now that I feel like it's going to, you know, they're more likely to get into road rage situations, which is riskier than you know. Anyway, here's Leo. It's not the Leo I was thinking of. It's Leo in Port Jefferson, but I'm sure this is a very fine Leo in and of himself. Hi, Leo. I, like,
4: I can cast some road rage with the traffic right now myself. Okay. But uh, uh, no, I, I was just. Uh, Listening to the news before your show, and uh, they had uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, speaking, saying, talking about the Democrats are for Brett Kavanaugh's impeachment, uh, with the implication being that all the Democrats are calling for Brett Kavanaugh's impeachment, and uh, it just sounded like something, another lie that he was making up to rile up his base, uh, because every Democrat I've heard interviewed said, "Hey, let's wait until until we control." Uh, uh, the House, and we can do an investigation. Uh, I haven't heard any responsible uh, senior Democrat call for the impeachment of Brett
2: uh, Kavanaugh. Ha- have you? Um, n- not any prominent Democrat. No, I didn't uh, watch every jot and tittle of everything that happened this week, and I certainly saw kind of chatter on social media about this, but chatter on social media is worth the paper that it's printed on, and it's not printed on any paper at all. It's worthless. So, I, I, you well, know, I, I'm aware I of that. Because yeah.
4: uh, I wouldn't doubt that there are quite a few Democrats who would like to impeach Brett Kavanaugh right now. But uh, to, the, to suggest that that's the uh, the, the main drive of uh, the Democratic candidates who are running right now is just, uh, just a little lie. And I didn't like the, the fact that the news report would have that without
2: yeah without well, Yeah, without well, some kind of correction. Yeah, Leo, i have got to let you go because it's uh, yeah, I, I'm sensing you're coming into a rotary right now. I can tell when people are heard that's going to happen. I will say, let me say this. And I, I'm not totally damning one side or another about this. I mean, like one side more than the other. Although I I kind of do feel that in this particular case, I mean, I try to be kind of even handed. I think the Republicans are a little bit more comfortable, particularly in the Trump era with this than the Democrats are with what I'm about to say. But so through all of my lifetime, there have been these junctures in the history of American public life where Somebody or some group has had to—and uh, I'm talking about somebody or some group—inside the Beltway, at the very core of American power, um, groups of people have had to say, is Objective A worth tearing the country apart? You know, um, is, is is Objective A or B worth what would actually happen to the country? Uh, would it be better— even though objective A is a worthy goal from our point of view, would it be better to—I'll give you a recent example. I mean, I think you can, you can go through zillions of them. But, you know, when Barack Obama was sworn in as president, there were a lot of people who wanted him— to try some of the members of the Bush administration for war crimes. Uh, There are ways in which the subversion of the Constitution was so extreme uh, in response to 9-11. And things that were done, often to people who had nothing to do with 9-11 and maybe nothing to do with any particular terrorist group, uh, the use of black sites, uh, the use of torture and rendition, um, the holding of people without charges. Uh, There were a lot of people who said war crimes the, we really need to have truth and reconciliation. And that starts with truth. Um, and Obama ultimately decided it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth what it would put the country through, that you know he was still a little bigger believer of, in consensus than he wound up having to be. But, um, but I mean, those kinds of calculations go on all the time. Uh, and what concerns me a little bit, uh, per Leo's call, is that increasingly... On, on both sides, we're willing—I think the ante is getting upped. In other words, we're willing maybe to put the country through more stress and travail in order to get to a, 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 our objective than we were before. I mean, not, you know, it's, it inches up. Anyway, there's mission creep. Uh, all right, so um, sh- can I take one? No, I think I should uh, go to a break, and then we'll squeeze as many more calls as we can in. Here's a clock we're on today because of fundraising. Um, we're going to go uh, to about 33, about 133. i I'm going to tell you the way we talk. <laughs> we're going to go to about 133. we We're going to do a little bit of fundraising, and then we'll come back. It's still going to be all calls when we come back from that. So if you don't get on the air and you've got something to say, and we go out to the—there's a very quick little fun drive break. We'll come back. We'll take more of your phone calls. But let's take a break right now, and then we'll come back. And there won't be a break. There won't be pledges. We'll just be you. So don't panic, all right? We've got another 11 minutes here. All right. And we are back. We are relying heavily, maybe exclusively, on phone calls and my personal prattle uh, today. So um, I'm just going to go right back to the phones here. Without further ado, we've got a lot of people on the lines. Uh, here's uh, Amy in Niantic. Hi, Amy. Hello. What's on your mind
3: well, I feel like there have been numerous times in this whole process where there was the possibility that we could have an exchange of ideas at a certain level, and something has happened that just makes your heart sink. Um, I also heard on the news right before the show started about the idea that there are some Democrats who are trying to impeach Justice Kavanaugh, and I feel like, you know, this is a done deal. We need to agree that this has been accomplished, whether or not we like it, um, and move forward. It just feeds into the Democrats have have a sour grapes attitude that trumps base beliefs. And I feel like I had the same moment of my heart sinking when the third accusation of sexual misconduct for then Judge Kavanaugh came up from Stormy Daniels' lawyer. And I thought, all right, we, we had something with some credibility, and now it's just sunk to a level where um, it's taken all of the legitimacy out of what might have been uh, a conversation.
2: Right. I, I agree with you 100 percent. I sort of feel like somebody needs to tell Michael Avenatti what his lane is and then to stay in it. Um, because, like, you know, I mean, the Stormy Daniel stuff was kind of interesting and he handled it in a way that kind of befit the subject matter. But I mean, I, when that when he brought that thing forward, I thought, I mean, sometimes you're handing the other side a blowtorch to scorch you with, you know. And, yeah. and, and so, I mean, I don't know how many times Uh, I heard Republicans go, gang rape? No, he didn't do gang rape. They're just saying he did gang rape, as though that were sort of the main charge coming against Kavanaugh. Because
3: then they're going to go to the most ludicrous part of the charges, and that's what they're going to put forward. And that's what they're going to get people to respond to.
2: Right. And, and I, I think similarly, most of the impeach Kavanaugh stuff is, is kind of a straw um, thing that doesn't really have a lot of traction in any mainstream channels. But it's a very exciting thing to bring up if you want to, as you're suggesting, discredit uh, the opposition. So, yeah. Um, and
3: maintain that sense of Republican outrage that you hope will take people to the polls to right. vote the way you would like them to vote.
2: Right. And, and you know, the, the the traditional thinking about all this, and traditional thinking I freely acknowledge is almost useless these days, but the the traditional thinking about this is that the losing side, the side of the grievance, uh, has the electoral advantage. So, you know, with four weeks to go, uh, the Democrats having kind of lost their ability to block Kavanaugh should have a tactical and emotional a motivational advantage in terms of getting to the polls. And, yeah. and and I think the Republicans are keenly aware of that. So they're kind of looking for things that they can bring up that sound like potential grievances. And, and this impeachment thing, I think, it would be one of them. All right. Well, great. Great to talk to you, Amy. Enjoy the rest of your day. I'm just going right down without fear or favor. I'm going right down the line. Well, with some fear All right, and just uh, clicking each box here on the screen. So here's Peter in Mansfield. Hi, Peter. You're on the air.
1: Hi, Colin um i've been meaning to call you about this for um two or three years uh bringing this all back to connecticut and your program the wheelhouse um and i call as a as a fan of you and bill curry and uh, all of them uh who come on the wheelhouse but i think that you have a that, that you have a little bit of a responsibility here too you know the wheelhouse has such a sour view of connecticut politics um it's a view that says things are going wrong here because Connecticut legislators and politicians are clowns and crooks and that's about that's about it that's about who they are clowns yeah. and crooks and i think that you know one of the biggest problems with that thesis besides the sourness and the cynicism that it creates is that it's intellectually lazy i mean you and bill curry could do better than to always come back at that point. Um, so, you know, there are a couple of ways. I, I'll give you an, an, an example, a few examples, really. I mean, you go, and by the way, there were definitely clowns and crooks in the legislature, no question about it. Um, but that, I think, is so, it's just a small part of the story. So, you know, it's it's pretty much clear that whoever whichever gubernatorial candidate, certainly the four years ago, and probably this year, too, as gubernatorial candidates have to contend with this incredible budget mess that, that we're in, that the candidate who speaks most truthfully about the pain that we're going to have to go through to fix this is probably the one who's going to lose. And I think that that's part of what your discussion on the wheelhouse should be the you know what the role of the um electorate is Uh, and frankly you know if the one who told the truth or who was most candid would increase their chances of election guess what they would um uh speak more candidly um but, okay, okay I'm, gonna, I'm, just
2: gonna, I'm just going to stop you here just, so, sure. just for time's sake. I'll just say a sure. couple of things about that. The point that you're making is true, but it's always true. It's not just true in Connecticut. It's not just true. I mean, it's true everywhere. It's, you know, I mean, how do you think Ronald Reagan got elected all the time? I mean, basically, if you tell people you've got a pr- way to cut their taxes, solve their problems, make things better, that doesn't involve any pain— um, you are you always have a tactical advantage over some, you know, Michael Duk- Dukakis guy who wants to talk to you very realistically about this. And that's not a problem caused by the press. or It's just sort of the nature of politics. It's a very hard thing to get away from. I, and, and as far as the wheelhouse goes, I understand your criticism, and we're probably guilty of having a little bit too much fun uh, ridiculing various politicians. But, I mean, I also think we do some pretty serious substantive policy stuff. And I don't know if you saw my column this past Sunday where I talk about the fact that really none of these candidates – is uh, the kind of policy master that Dan Malloy is, you know, for all the talk of, oh, I'm not Dan Malloy, he's Dan Malloy, Dan Malloy sucks. The truth is, Malloy has a, an awful lot more substance and campaigning ability than any of these guys. And we've talked, a, even at the most recent wheelhouse, one of the things that I talked about, I'm pretty sure it was on the wheelhouse, that, you know, that Malloy ultimately will be known for things like decriminalizing marijuana, medical marijuana, abolishing the death penalty, certain strides made in the transportation system, if not all of them. Uh, Reopening the union contact contracts twice to see if he could get some concessions out of them, and and these are all things. I mean, we don't just sit around, you know, giggling about this stuff all day long on the yeah, wheelhouse.
1: But, you, know, you, you you While Malloy was governor, I've listened to to the wheelhouse a lot. I, I listen to it less because it uh, it angers me, uh, the relentless ridicule. Um, and I, I and I know that, that it's not always. But when when Dan Malloy was. Um, was Governor well he still is, but when when he you know the the recognition of what he was up against and his accomplishments, even though he has that porcupine character um, was very grudging very uh, you know this is this is kind of like speaking uh, you know not wanting to speak of, uh, poorly of somebody who's just died well you know this will be the end of his political career, and now you're uh, open heartedly uh, you know giving him some of his due, but again the The overwhelming tenor is is just something else. Um, you know and, and that you and that you and Bill Curry could do a much better job of telling us the true dynamics. Well, I think of first of all, I'm of going to have to
2: stop here because we're coming up to a fund break a fundraising break. First of all, it's mainly Bill Curry's fault. I think we would all agree that if there's a problem, if there's a a, uh, <laughs> a note of negativity or anything like that. I think we could all unanimously and wholeheartedly agree it's Bill Curry's fault. Um, what's was this? Thirty-three forty? I'm why i going out here. Okay, so um, so that's number one. I, I also feel like, look, I mean, if that's your take on the wheelhouse, that's fine. I, I think basically we we try to have really balanced panels. We talk about a lot of stuff. I, you know, I mean, it's part of it is our job to criticize politicians. Anyway, we got to raise a little money, money of money here. Thank you for supporting the show. Please support the show. All right, we're back. Oh, should I do C's or uh, yeah, or are you doing, did you already do them? Yeah. All right, I didn't send them to you. So let me thank everybody who needs to be thanked. You can see <laughs> we're kind of tearing down the fourth wall for you a little bit here today, or you're hearing a little bit about like how uncertain I am about exactly when I'm supposed to go out to the pledge break and I haven't done the thank you segments and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, first of all, I'd like to thank Kion Wolf. She's on the board today. Betsy Kaplan is the person who produced this particular episode. I don't, Think any of our interns are in today? Or they'd probably be in here doing something. Uh, the uh, of course the part uh, of Bill Curry was played by Richard Thomas. Uh, and so tomorrow on the show, uh, we're actually uh, going to talk to Steve Kornacki. Kornacki Steve Cornacki is a, a correspondent and analyst for MSNBC. He's written a new book about tribalism, uh, about political tribalism, about the wellsprings of it. It kind of fits into the conversations we've been having a lot on this show. He's also like from Connecticut originally. Uh, Wethersfield, maybe? Someplace like that. Uh, and so anyway, he'll be with us for the first part of the show. And then for the second half of the show, we thought we'd talk about actual tribalism. I mean, tribalism not so much as a metaphor the way we use it now, but uh, obviously tribalism comes out of the idea of tribes. We're going to talk to a scholar in Native American studies about this. I mean, it's possible that, I mean, we're always using tribalism these days as kind of a stand-in for Any kind of group that doesn't get along with another kind of group, you know, so it's uh, Hutus and Tutsis, uh, it's Sunnis and Shias. These are tribal uh, conflicts. And obviously, red state, blue state here, there's a kind of tribalism now that seems to be getting in the way of political discourse. It's possible. I'm not saying for sure, but it's possible we'd actually be better off if we were more like actual tribes, uh, that there are maybe some evidence that Native American tribes uh, we're uh, less destructive of one another a lot of the time than we are. Anyway, uh, so that'll be the second half of the show. But political tribalism, Steve Kornacki first. Okay, so um, we're going to go back to the phones here. Uh, 860-275-7266. I mean, I, I sort of opened the phones on kind of a national bad mood moment. If you're just tuning in, it's kind of like, you know, There's I have this sense right now that there's not a malaise, but sort of this seething percolating sense of really visceral discontent, um, and it's, it's certainly going to be there, sizzling on the front burner from now until the November election and, and maybe beyond. So kind of, you know, I'm just curious to know, what are people doing with those kinds of feelings? I'm going to go to uh, Mary and Rick and Sal, and I'll get to as many of you callers as I possibly can. Here's Mary. Hi.
5: Thank you so much. Um, I am part of a very energized group of Democrats in Southbury, and since June, we have tried to be very proactive. Um, we are doing a weekly canvassing of our neighbors and a weekly phone bank of our neighbors, and we kind of do a hybrid type of canvassing. We, You know, there's such a thing as deep canvassing. Um, we are trying to work for candidates, but we're also trying to establish a rapport with our neighbors, Um, And we are trying to get the true narrative about what Democrats stand for, um, because I think it pretty much is up to the population, to the citizenry, to explain to our neighbors that Democrats stand for quality, affordable health care for all, uh, fair taxation. In other words, the wealthy can take a larger share of the burden and we can take some of that off of the working poor and the um middle class and uh basically income um sustenance, right? We want people to get a living wage. We want a a a planet for our children and our grandchildren. So we are trying in a very positive, proactive way, to knock on our neighbors door, say, Hi, I'm Mary, I'm your South Green neighbor. And I'd like you to think about this upcoming election and how important it is to vote for
2: Democrats. You sound great. What are you called? Uh,
5: the Southbury Democratic Town Committee. <laughs> and I just happen to be the uh, um, chair of the canvassing because hmm. I was working for Fight Back Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And full disclosure is we do get our list from Fight Back Connecticut. So we target Democrats who are not, uh, what's the word, Uh we can't depend on them to show up for a midterm. They, they will likely vote for Democrats, but we're going out and we're saying, these are the reasons you need to get to the poll. What can we do to help you get to the poll? polls? Um, you know, we also go to unaffiliated that we think probably lean more Democrat. And I tell you, 10 of us went out, calling yesterday, and, um, you know, Southbury's a tough terrain. You know, I don't know if you've ever been there, but, like, it's not easy canvassing, Right. You have to be on a lot of treacherous roads. And we probably knocked on 68 doors, which is not going to get us in the Guinness World Book of Records. But we talked to probably 32 neighbors. And I can say hugely people were like, you know what? In the past, I maybe said I was going to look at the issues. You know, I was going to look at the candidate. But I know how important it is to vote for Democrats because we are losing our representative government
2: right i Um, i I like the thing that you started out with a lot mary you know that idea of really just talking about issues talking about the things that you think and and i like your idea too of the population defining what the democratic party is or the republican party is i I mean i think one of the problems that's happened one of the things that has crippled our political discourse and and our, our our politics in washington right now is that we have Uh, elected members of Congress who are less sensible uh, and less amenable to reason and less aware of some of the ideas that you just articulated than the population is. It's one of the reasons why our politics, and once again, this is going to come up a little bit more on next Tuesday's show too, but maybe tomorrow with Cornacki, for all I know. Our politics have devolved into these elections that are about acquiring a slim majority for one side and then that one side tries to either do things that they want to do, but they can't do it all all the way because they don't have the preponderant majority that they need. you know and then two years or four years later, they lose their slim majority, it is replaced by the other side's slim majority. the other side a tries to undo everything that the first side d- does did and, and then try to put into their in place their watered down versions of their own ideas. And you can argue that ultimately that keeps in check really bad ideas, like if Paul Ryan could do anything he wanted, um, the Medicare and Social Security that you and I have paid into and rely on would probably be substantially compromised. So it's it's good that Paul Ryan, when he's in power, can't have anything that he wants. And I suppose the other th- other side thinks it's good, you know, that, that, that the comparable, that Chuck Schumer can't have anything that he wants. Um, But it also makes progress very difficult. Uh, And it's, I think, important for us as a nation to figure out what are the things we really do agree on. I think there's more agreement about things like health care and gun background checks and stuff like that than what we get at the level of our congressional discourse. Uh, Sorry to go on. All right. Here's Rick. Uh, Rick uh, in Hartford. Uh, By the way, our number is 860-275-7266, although we're kind of, you know, full of calls here now. Hi, Rick. You're on the air.
6: Hey, Colin. You know it's difficult not to get tangled up in tactics. So what I try to do is to um, uh, go above and look strategically. You know, the election, the format was set up when the country was agrarian. Mm-hmm. It was an agrarian society. Then it became an industrial society, and the owners with capital uh, called the ball. Labor starts getting strong. And now we're in what I call, uh, it's a lot of a better term, um, the cyber informational society, where citizens who pay attention, who have information, can make the difference. Bottom line, the way we can increase our common ground is to have more people look at voting like a purchase. It's like Amazon. When you go... You, and to make it easy for people to make that choice, forget about Election Day. How about Election Weekend 24-7? That's the way America is today. People work two jobs. Some work three.
2: I think that's oh. a great, I think that idea is a great proposal, that idea of making, if that's what you're talking about, making um, electoral p- p- uh, participation easier. I, I used to not believe this. This is an area where I've really changed. I used to think, you know what? There's Election Day. Uh, it starts uh, early in the morning, 6 in the morning, ends at 8 p.m., you, you can you can vote. But I now am much more in favor of early voting, voting by mail, all, all that kind of stuff, A- anything that sort of gets more people into the system. And I think Rick is right. People are super busy right now, and they're used to the idea that they can do things, they can accomplish important things with keystrokes. I mean, it should make us less pressured right now that we don't have to churn our own butter. But somehow or other, it doesn't. Uh, all right. Here's uh, Sal in East Haddam. Hi, Sal. You're on the air.
7: Hi, Colin. How are you? Good. Good. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say I enjoy your show most of the time. And um, I, w- I wanted to comment on the um, on the, the latest uh, climate report that came out yep. and the whole Trump presidency thing. And I've had a sinking feeling since very early on after the election when Trump won Um, That this was tied to climate change somehow, that the the unstoppable um, effect of climate change is is really upon us. And the scientific community uh, keeps finding that they've underestimated with every new study and that if if it is, if the disruption is going to increase, we need a completely different kind of government to deal with it. And I, I worry that um, you know uh, during during his Trump's campaign, it was so outrageous the 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 antics that he was using, the ridicule and the slander and the the mocking of of a uh, cerebral palsy reporter right in front of him, and that no one took him out. No one. There must be plenty of dirt on Mr. Trump. The Clintons aren't opposed to dirty politics, and yet Howard Dean was taken out for going yee-haw because he won a primary.
2: All right, and no although, one took Trump out. Although we we should say this is actually sort of a meso fact uh, that that that's why Howard Dean was taken out. He was actually already in trouble when he went yeehaw. His campaign was already having a lot of problems. But yeah, I mean, look, I, I want to, I want to stay with your main point, Sal, because it's a really important one, and I and I will agree with you that on election night of 2016 and the next day, the the thing that made me the sickest was climate change and was the environment, because most most of the ills of the Trump administration, you know, there's going to be a lot of damage and there's going to be some people, you know, who, I mean, the, the immigration policies mean that they're going to be people who get stuck in very dangerous countries and may lose their lives unnecessarily when they really would have been eligible uh, to, to, to be refugees for refugee status here. Just the ways that they've reshaped all that, it's just terrible. But really, the environmental part of this is the part that we can't easily reverse, uh To not have some enlightened leadership on this issue, and yeah, this report that came out today, maybe the scariest one yet, and you know, i don't know I mean, I work in this newsroom where all these reporters keep having babies, wonderful, beautiful babies and I, and, and you know you got to be scared. I mean, the projection that came out today suggests that when those babies are getting out of college, I mean they're really going to be in a lot of trouble, and nobody wants that. Um and, and there's an argument to be made for the fact that we just shouldn't talk about anything else. Um I, I don't and it's almost shocking to me that we talk so little about it. And maybe somehow or other today's report will be the thing that gets our, our eyes on this. But you know, I mean, look, we can stand changes to the Supreme Court. It's not great, but as Howard Zinn pointed out, it's not the only engine for justice that we have. Uh, You know, we can stand a a lot of bad ideas and bad thinking. Uh, But the environmental piece of this, you, you know, and it was clear from the day he won this election that we were going to, no matter what, We were going to have people in charge of these decisions who don't don't believe in basic science and are willing to play dice. You know, I mean, the thing that I always used to say about climate change when I was on a conservative radio station, I was the House liberal on a conservative station is it's sort of like Pascal's wager. You know, I mean, if it turns out that climate change is this big hoax, you know, this big thing that wasn't real. Um, what will we have done? We will have become more energy efficient. We'll be spending less money uh, on on energy. Um, we'll be using more renewable resources, our air will be cleaner, which is a sort of fundamentally a good thing. I mean, all of the things that you would do in response to climate change would make sense to do not in response to climate change. So if we take climate change seriously and it turns out and it's not going to turn out, but just, you know, let's take their argument. It turns out to be a big hoax. We've lost absolutely nothing and we've gained certain economic advantages as the rest of the world looks for ways to get more renewable forms of energy. If we're right, if climate change is real, then we have to do it. So, I mean, it's a win-win on one side and a lose-lose on the other side. And I've just kind of never understood why there's any other conversation to have, except that I do understand and I know that we have them. All right, so good people, I'm sorry if I didn't get to your phone call, Janice, Bob, Jason. Good people are gonna come on right now and ask you to support this show, this station. If you do it right now, you know, we get a little bit more credit for it, so that's nice. But uh, yeah, if you love stuff like this, support it.